Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef, proudly supported by Suncorp Bank. I'm not going to lie, I'm completely intrigued by today's guest. Greg Pankhurst is the chair of the Queensland Live Exports Association following a 35-year career in the feedlotting and live export industry. He's had a long stint working in live export markets overseas, which I imagine is what has sparked his interest in collecting Indonesian wedding dresses and ceremonial clothes. He's also a mentor in Beef Australia's Graham Acton Beef Connections program. And Greg, that's so much to talk about in so little time. Yeah, good morning, Jane. It's uh, it's great to be involved in the program and uh, I look forward to sharing a little bit of my story with you. I am, as I said, I'm completely intrigued by this story, but I guess we need to, you know, a lot of it does centre around the live export trade and your long career there. So how did you first get involved in the live export industry? So I went to University of Armidale, uh, UNE, uh, and finished there in uh, 88, 89, mm-hmm. and then had a job at Rangers Valley, um, which had just started into the feedlotting, and I had two years there, which was, that was a, a Wagyu specialty feedlot at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and then was asked to go to Indonesia in 1991 to start up a, a new feedlot operation over there called Tipperary Indonesia, which was a joint venture between uh, Australian Tipperary Station Group and, and a big multinational in Indonesia called the Bakri Brothers. So I was a 22-year-old young fellow and, uh, and never left Australia and was, was quite green and uh, had worked in Glenninus where we experienced you know, minus 10 every now and then and uh, was asked to get on an aeroplane and, and go to Indonesia to go work in the tropics. And so it all started uh, and I signed a contract for two years and uh, kissed goodbye to my girlfriend, who is now my wife, oh, wow. uh, and uh, said I'll be back in two years' time. And uh, 28 years later, I still uh, have an amazing relationship with Indonesia and, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's, been a great, it's been a great journey. Yeah, and there's quite a lot to unpack there. You just jammed a lot into a couple of sentences. I just want to go back, you know, you got off the aeroplane in Indonesia. As you said, 22, you've got this massive job. What was it like? What do you remember about that moment um, when everything just sort of sunk, was starting to sink in? Yeah, so it was a very lucky that I was picked up off the aeroplane by a guy called Dickie Adiwasso, and he was my boss, and he'd been good enough to come out to the airport and pick me up. And uh, and so Dickie, who's now my business partner and, and my Indonesian brother, I suppose you would say, because I'm, I'm very close to Dickie. I talk to Dickie two or three times a day still. Wow. Uh, and so he, he picked me up from the plane and he, he took me over to another airport and then put me on another plane to send me send me to the feedlot. So I had a couple of hours with him. And I got off that plane in uh, in Lampung, Banda Lampung, um, which was, you know, it was a, it was a simple place back then. And there'd been a riot at the feedlot the day before. And so my first uh, encounter with anything in Lampong was to sit at the police station whilst uh, they interrogated people about the riot at the feedlot. And so I suppose that was a bit confronting. Confronting, but it's also you're obviously not fluent in the language by this stage, or maybe you were, but this, that's a lot to take in when you're in, in a rural area and I'd imagine yeah. language barrier, cultural barriers. Yep. So, you know, I, I, hadn't, I, I had no Indonesian skills. I'd learned Indonesia at school, 
But of course, when you learned Indonesia school at year eight and year nine, no one ever thought you were going to go to Indonesia. And so I landed in Indonesia, been able to say good morning, teacher. Well, so it really that's didn't polite. get me a long way. Mm. <laughs> so what happened then? That was a fairly big first day. And then what what were you actually doing in the day to day in that initial stage? So the feedlot was about an hour away from the main town, and the main town was a town called Bandalampung. And so it was a, a new startup. They had about two thousand cattle there. Um, it was about 300 workers. Uh, it was a beautiful facility, um, and I was just dropped straight into the middle of nowhere, no language skills, uh, really no cultural skills. It was quite, you know, culture in itself is is a massive change when you go from Australia to Indonesia 30 years ago. It's it's quite a shock. Um, and so we started running the feedlot. And, uh, look, it was pretty tough times. Um, there was... A, a, not much feed available because this was something that hadn't occurred. Uh, there was very few markets for the cattle when they were ready to sell. Uh, you had staff to train, uh, language barriers, um, communication barriers. We had no phone at the feedlot, so there was no way to, to talk to anyone in the outside world. Um, yeah, it was the wild, wild west. But anyhow, it moved along and six weeks, eight weeks into the into the time over there, I managed to get into town and I rang my, my girlfriend, my wife now, Rosamond, and I said, you don't have to worry too much, I'll, I'll be home within a few weeks and because uh, I was sick of it, it was pretty hard going. And um, lo and behold, and probably another, another month I'd stayed there and um, it all clicked and uh, we just started to move along and it was a lot of support from from the senior staff that were quite keen to to have someone there to look after it with some experience even though I didn't have heaps of experience I'd only had a couple of years at Rangers Valley but um, it clicked and uh, and it all went from there. So what, at what point did you think it was great idea to for your now wife um, did I, I miss her name is Rosalind come over? Rosalind. Rosalind. Yeah, Rosalind. When, yep. when did she come over and then you made it you know a, a long-term yeah, she... kind of thing? Yeah, she came over in first time. She came over was in August '92, so she didn't come over. She was still studying, and so she came over and with a couple of my great mates from uni, two two friends I had at uni, and so we had a week tripping around Indonesia together, which was which was excellent. Um, and then she came back to live full time in uh, 1994, and uh, she lived there for about seven years, and we had one. One of our sons grew up, had a couple, had a year or so in Indonesia, and the other one was. They were both born in Australia, but uh, and she lived there for seven years and had a great time there. Like she did a lot of charity work, and we had a quite a big expatriate community there. And we had a lot of lot of Indonesian friends, and um, even though the town was uh, about three million people, uh, there wasn't a lot to do there. So we had to sort of make our own fun and uh, adventures. And I guess in expat, well, my, my um, experience in expat communities is a lot of fun because of that exact reason. You've got to really make it for yourselves. And you've oh, been very much so. similar yeah. and experiences. A lot, of, a lot of those friends, there was only, there were 60 expatriates. And I, and I think it's very important to immerse yourself in the local community as yes. well, which we did. But there were 60 expatriates there at the time when we started in, in 92. And, and they, um, and we still have very close friendships with them. We've Skyped them. Quite regularly, we actually have a uh, two yearly reunion, which can be anywhere in the world that we get together. Um, so they were very, and again, you know, we were only kids. Ros and I were only 22, 23 year olds, so we're only very young, young people. And so a lot of those people were quite older, and, and we formed some really good, uh, 
um, mentoring relationships with those people as well. Oh, how fun. That sounds awesome. But I guess the, the primary reason you were there was because of the cattle. So what changes have you witnessed over that time um, with the with, in cattle from when you first arrived to, say, now? Yes, so, so in those early days, 1991 through to 1997, which was the no, Asian financial crisis occurred in 1997, the, the industry just boomed. So you saw this huge influx of uh, feedlots being built. You saw um, a massive amount of cattle. I think in uh, 1997 there was something like 800,000 cattle came into Indonesia. Um, you had this great desire for, for a consumption of meat. Indonesia was, was bubbling along very well economically, and so there was a great demand for, for beef and for meat, even though not huge quantities. They're still only consuming two kilograms per person per year, but you've always got to think about there's, there was back then there was 200 million people. Now there's 270 million people, and they're consuming about 2.2, 2.3 kilos now. But the big changes, I think, have been in, in cattle um, quality and cattle genetics. So back then we, we had a lot of cattle that came out of the out of the Kimberley in the top end and, and they, you know, they were lacking genetics. They were lacking that uh, the ability to feed on well. And we've seen some amazing genetic changes and, and introduction of some great genetics into the northern herd. And so now you've got amazing cattle that come into Indonesia or Vietnam, which can be fed very, very well. And those cattle can either come south as well they can come down in the feedlots in in the darling down or they can head to the feedlots in in indonesia and be fed extremely well and for you for you to get an amazing product out of and so your access to feed over there has obviously improved too that's a, probably something that's actually decreased so access to feed once you got your head around where what you were going to feed and what you um had to feed there's an abundance of feed over there so i went over there with a with a mindset and a and an experience of feeding grain. And so that's what we do in Australia. We, we burn diesel, we make, uh, we grow grain and we burn diesel again to harvest the grain and then we feed that to cattle. Mm. Indonesia is uh, totally different. You actually go and collect um, agricultural byproduct from some of these massive factories that produce all these different bits and pieces to produce animal, uh, human food, and then they have a byproduct. So we, Massive consumers of, uh, of tapioca waste. Tapioca is probably our biggest product for, especially for starch and energy. Mm-hmm. And so this tapioca flour goes out one side or tapioca starch goes out one side to make paper and there's a byproduct that comes out the other end. And so we use that to, to feed animals. And then we have got from rice, so rice bran from the milling of rice, um, pineapple pulp, uh, waste bananas, waste noodles, waste bread. Um, copra meal, palm kernel meal, huge amount of waste product that, that we were able to feed to cattle. But that's a very different diet to the Australian beast that's heading over. So, you know, you say the genetics have improved and there's no, you know, they respond very well to that complete change in diet? Yeah, so they've come out of the north and they've, you know, they've sometimes they're nutritionally challenged out coming out of the north depending on the season. Mm. Um, and so you put them onto a ration which is a very well-balanced ration for these type of cattle, for this type of condition. Um, again, Indonesia doesn't like a lot of fat, so uh, we, we have to tune our ration so we're not getting too much fat and feed them for 120 days and weight gains between 1.5 to 1.8. Most feedlots are achieving now, some some better than that. So some very good results out of Brahman cattle. 
Yeah, radio. Do you, do you think there will ever be a time where our resources or the Australian resources are concentrating on breeding programs over there as opposed to live export, or is it live export still the sort of main option? No, I think they work. They will begin to work hand in hand. Um, Indonesia has great desire to increase its its local herd. Um, in the last ten to fifteen years, its local herd has, has probably decreased um, because. It, the main source of red meat in Indonesia still comes from the local herd. So around about 9 to 11 million local cattle in Indonesia, and they process about 2, 2.5 million of those per year. Uh, they're a lighter animal. Um, and then you've got your five, 600,000 of, uh, of Australian imported cattle that usually slaughter weight of about 500 kilos. And then you've got this box meat trade, which is which is bubbling, you know, bubbling along and increasing. So you've got a lot of meat from from Australia, and then you've got the Indian buffalo meat, mm. which has just started to come in in the last few years. And so it's a lower quality product, and and does fit well with the Indonesian backso market, which is their their meatball market, which is the main main area of consumption in Indonesia. So where's it, who's eating the Australian cattle then? What market are they going so to? So that market, that meat has been blended with the Indian uh, buffalo meat. So okay. there's, they're very smart at blending products. And so <laughs> people still, uh, and there's still a, a good requirement for what we call hot meat. So an Australian animal fed for 120 days in a, in a feedlot in Indonesia, um, then processed through a facility. And the facilities are not large. The facility usually processes anywhere between two and 10 head a night. So... The animal is transported to a to a city or a town, um, maybe a couple of hundred kilometres away, and then it's processed there. And then that that meat is used to feed that the immediate district or immediate area away from around the facility. And so um, that meat is consumed within 24 hours as a ground beef or a, in a curry or as a satay. So majority of the product is actually ground up to make baxo balls. Okay, right. So how what, how did you find the Indonesian food? Because you just rattled off all these delicious things off the tip of your tongue. If ever, anyone's ever seen me, Jane, they, they'll probably say he hasn't done too bad in Indonesia So uh, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the food front. So, no, I'm a, I'm a big foodie. So, look, I love, uh, love Indonesian food, um, and so you yeah, still no, do you good. still cook it at home a lot? Oh, you're very spoilt when you're in Indonesia. So we had a lovely um, helper over there, which which was day one. She looked after me from from day one. Uh, her name was Umi, and uh, and she looked after my wife, and she looked after my kids, and uh, she uh, she still works for us over there. Um, and uh, look, she's a she's a great lady. We uh, we she brought her to Australia a few years back, um, and then. Uh, when um, I was sort of moving out of the industry and out of the business, CPC brought a, um, a great lady called Brooke Barkler into the business over there and Brooke actually took uh, took Umi on and, and Umi now looks after Brooke when she's over there. So, you know, you've, you have this amazing person that looks after you. Yes. Um, and I had a... Yeah, and they're great. And, uh, and she can cook, so that was a bonus. Oh, she could cook. Well, yeah, yeah see, cook. we lived mm. in Kenya for a time and similar sort of thing, you take someone on, but unfortunately Kenya doesn't have the same culinary delights as some of our Asian countries. So we very quickly learned that we were better off perhaps cooking for ourselves and um, and Mary did some other things in the house. <laughs> mm. A lot of the live export cattle that are exported come from Northern Australia. So how, how significant is that industry to Northern Australia? 
Oh, very significant. Very the, the export industry is is a, a very very important part of of the northern industry. And you know, you so live cattle are, are brought from all around, from Fremantle all around to Port Alma, and so it's a massive area. I think there's about eight ports that are, that ship cattle now, and they cattle go to Vietnam or to Indonesia or to some of the other markets. But I only really concentrate on those two Vietnamese and, and Indonesian markets. But it's a very, very important part of the of the top ends market. But in saying that, we've seen this year with record cattle prices, um, a decreasing herd, some challenging climatic conditions, and we've seen some of those southern feedlotters go right up into the territory and and bring or well, not only feedlotters but backgrounders and bring Brahmin cattle down to Victoria. So. You know, cattle will move all around Australia. So the next phase will be rebuilding for us. So how's that going to affect the live export market in the the next couple of years? Yeah, look, rebuilding is obviously a, a bit of a challenge, um, and again, climate plays a large part of that. Um, and we're seeing these extremely high prices in the north now, and and our customers are finding it very difficult to to pay the price that we're asking. Um, and that does worry me a little bit in that uh, we're still seeing this this trickle in or not a not a not a, a torrent or raging torrent of Indian buffalo meat into Indonesia, but we are seeing it gaining momentum and the amount that's coming in. And I'd, I hate to see it actually take over the market rather than the, the Australian cattle. And we, we need to be pretty careful and mindful of that and, and that build continue to build that relationship with the Indonesians so that they understand or they they understand that we're here for the long term and we're here as partners, which is very, very important. We we must partner with Indonesia rather than see it as a as a market. Thank you. Well, that's a very interesting point. I am going to change tact a little bit. Um, a report card, if you like, has been released recently on the live export industry analysing 30 years of data on the export of cattle, sheep and goats. So it's estimated 2,240 long-haul voyages between 1988 and 2017 and found to have significant improvements in performance driven by factors such as better preparation, vessel design and onboard management. And yet we still see the mainstream media doesn't really paint that picture. So what frustrations do you have with those kind of interpretations when you know, the industry figures are actually pretty good. Yes, our industry figures, and we continue to improve. So, you know, we must always say, no matter what you do in life, you continually try and improve on it. So industry continually tries to improve. Um, Things like mortality rates on ships, so animals which die on the ship in the cattle industry in the short haul is is so minor, it's 0.01%. Um, and and you, more people die on cruise ships than that. So um, the the and you said the things the preparation, the the ship design, the the onboard um, treatment of cattle and and servicing of cattle is just amazing nowadays. And so that everything through the supply chain, and and then we have this system called SCAS, which was brought in in two thousand eleven, which follows the animal all the way through the supply chain in the importing country right to the time where it's been processed 
So there is so many things that have been done over the last 20 years. It's amazing. And, and there will continue to be things rolled out. Um, and very interesting, we've, we're seeing quite a large influx of young people come into the trade. So there's a, a new association called Wyland, which is the Young Live Exporters Network. And so we have about 50 really active people on that, some of them here in Australia, some of them based in, uh, in, in country. And they are passionate about welfare, and so they are, you know, they are passionate about welfare, and they're passionate about feeding, feeding these big communities that we have on our door. So, what do you think industry can do to better educate the Australian public? So, when disaster strikes, such as the infamous live export ban, and then more recently the disappearance of the Gulf Livestock One, the public is, you know, maybe more sympathetic or has a better understanding of the rigor that the the whole industry has to adhere to. Yeah, so I think we need to be constantly educating, um, not just when disaster happens. So you're on the front foot instead of being the reactive. I always think that it's a bit more reactive than it needs to be. Yeah, it is, and industry is. And, and I think that's agriculture overall oh, is, sure. is a bit yeah. of as a reactor rather than a, keeping people informed. Um, we all sort of sit back and wait for something to happen and whether it be good or bad, and, and then we go out and talk about it. But I think it's... It, Industry, and, and again, I, I come back to this while and the Young Live Exporters Network. I think that's that where they're trying to do. They're trying to start to educate their peers and educate others in the community that, look, what we're doing is is um, is highly controlled. It is something that is, um, if, if we weren't going to send the, the cattle to Indonesia on these beautiful ships, they would have to stand on a truck and come all the way down, down here, which is still great, no problems. They're spelled and they're looked after very well. So, look, they have to go somewhere. They can't just live up there in the Northern Territory for the rest of their lives because there's there's not a market up there. They have to go somewhere. So we need to explain that these cattle are going to, to Indonesia or Vietnam to feed these emerging populations and, and very, very keen populations to eat good, fresh Australian meat, which is we sell as, you know, healthy and, and green and, and great for the great for, for them. So I, I, we just need to educate more along the way. And then maybe perhaps for the Australian public to eat a bit more beef than what they do if they don't want it to go overseas on a boat. Yeah, yeah well, that, that could be the other side. Or, 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 and, of course, we, you know, we also have an amazing industry here which processes animal in, in Australia and puts them in a box and sends them yeah. to every single country in the world, takes Australian beef. And, again, because it is such a good product. So at the end of the day, we, we, just, we want to be able to produce a great product and whether it goes in a box or goes on a boat, which is mm. live, mm. Uh, as long as the systems are in place to make sure everything is, goes according to a plan and, and our customers are happy, uh, that's what we need to think about. So we have some of the most rigorous animal welfare standards in the world. So how should we be celebrating them in an ideal world? What do you think we should do as a part of it, you know, whether that be education or whatever, but how should we be celebrating them? So you, you've, you've said the most rigorous animal welfare standards in the world. So no other country in the world actually says that you have to look after your animal from the time it leaves the farm, wherever it may be, in uh, in Tennant Creek, to the time it is actually processed in that little tiny processing facility at the back of Jakarta, that there's a whole chain that has to be overseen by the exporter and by the the exporters 
contacts and partners in country. And so we, we really need to say that, look, these animals have been looked after right along the line. No one else does that in the world. Uh, we are, and we continue to want to improve welfare standards right throughout the chain as well. Coming back to, you know, you've, you've left Indonesia and no doubt that was a pretty tough call to leave somewhere that's had such a big influence on you. But you're back in Brisbane, but you've got a little couple of farms outside of Brisbane. What are you doing there? Pre-COVID, I still used to go backwards and forwards to Indonesia at least once a month. So we're still, Dickie and I still got a lot of little bits and pieces over there. And CPC, even though they took, um, they purchased my share and um, they're still very good and, and, and I still help help them along the way and I still have great relationships with um, staff over there and customers over there and so I've been lucky enough to be able to continue to help and and be involved in the operations over there um, which I love to do and so the 13th of March was the last time I went to Indonesia so I'm I'm missing Indonesia. I was gonna say you'd have super itchy feet yeah your passport will be starting twitching or something. I don't even know where it is it's usually always in my top pocket but it's, uh, I don't know where it's gone now. It's, it hasn't been used for 10 months. But, um, yeah, I do miss do miss Indonesia. Um, and so back here in Australia, look, I've taken on Queensland Live Exporters uh, role of this for two years doing that. And that's great to be, be able to give back to the industry here on this side for someone that's had a lot of experience on the other side. I'm now back here and, and talking to people here. Um, we've, we've just invested in Frontier International. So that's a... Um, that's an export company, which is the old nutrient company. And so I've just become a shareholder and, a, and an assistant to the, the crew there. And so I'm looking much, very much looking forward to being involved there. Um, we've got two little farms up at Mount Me, which is a great part of the world. And uh, I love to spend some time up there with, with Roz and the boys and, uh, and mum and dad. And so it's a, it's a great family gathering place. Look, it's it's just a toy. It just runs a couple of hundred cattle, and we do a bit of uh, grow a bit of oats and a bit of ryegrass. But again, it's just a toy. And then, but it's great to be able to go up there. It's forty-five minutes from home, and here in Baden, and it's, it's a great place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you got to keep your finger in it a little bit, don't you, with these yep. sort of things? Now, this is what I've been I've been um, itching to ask you. Uh, pretty much the whole time I've been speaking, you've got quite a collection of Indonesian um, Indonesian ceremonial and wedding. Uh, costumes, which I find quite intriguing. I guess you should never assume, but I'm assuming that you know I'm going to that um, that your time in Indonesia sparked this. How? What, tell me yeah. about this collection. Yeah, but, but a pretty interesting story how it all started. So in the early days, like '93, I suppose it was. It was a, a mandatory that you had to have cattle out in the in the villages. So we had about three thousand cattle, which were in um, village little village feedlots. So they had about fifty or sixty cattle, and you build a little feedlot, and you give them fifty or sixty head of cattle, and they'd feed them for a hundred days. And there'd be ten or fifteen farmers that are involved, and they'd cut grass, and we'd give them concentrate, and they'd pull up water from the well and give the cattle every day. And and so this was an ongoing process through through the the feedlot system, and they'd come back to the feedlot, and we'd sell them. And there was a couple of feedlots who did a very, very good job. And, and they were making significant returns out of feeding these cattle for us. And, you know, they might have been making two years normal salaries in, in 90 days by just doing a really job, good job feeding these cattle. And there was this one particular guy. He was an older guy and his wife, and they were very diligent. And, yeah, I was, you know, I was a 23-year-old boy again, kid, just... Uh, 
just wanting to get back into town to drink a few bintangs, I suppose. And uh, and this old lady came out to me one day after about the third, fourth cycle of the cattle had come through, and she, they'd make a lot of money. And she gave me a packet which was wrapped up in some newspaper. And I, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I don't, don't know what I'm going to get here. Anyhow, she um she said, uh, Mr. Greg, I'd like to give you this because you've changed our life. You've you've done uh, you know this this cattle business is amazing. And so. I took the parcel and opened it up, and it was um, a ceremony. It was her wedding dress. Really? And uh, she said, look, you've changed your life so much. I'd like to – this is very, very special to me and the family, and I'd like to give you my wedding dress. And, you know, oh, gosh, I'm goodness. thinking, well, that's a bit strange. But anyhow, look, you accepted it, and uh, and I probably put it away in the cupboard. And, and do you think it's because – sorry, that was the most valuable thing that she had Herself. Yeah, it was yeah. probably the most special thing to her that she'd probably discussed with the family and said, you know, this these people have really changed our life. Wow. Uh, give them the wedding dress. And and lo and behold, probably I think it was two other people gave me a similar, gave me their, not their wedding dress, but a, a cloth which had some significance to them. So, you know, two years, uh, I probably left them in the cupboard for a couple of years and then I Roz came up and we sort of looked at these things and you know, they were quite special and quite unique and and so we then started to collect them and so I used to actively go out into the village and, and look for these sort of things and, and buy them off people and then people knew that I was collecting them and they'd bring them to the house and until uh, you know today I still get photos maybe 50 photos of cloths every week that I still buy online. What do you do with them? So we have a small, little small gallery at home and they're all housed in there. Um, so, um, yeah, I just collect. And, and so at the end of the day, it's, it's quite clear that I've taken these cloths from Indonesia. Um, you know, I bought them and, wow. and you're quite able to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And But uh, we want to gift them back to Indonesia, to Lampung. Um, so to a museum I, or a yeah, village? To, or? We'll, probably have, we'll probably have to establish a small gallery or museum over there so that um, we can have some control over it. But maybe in the next 20 years, we, we give them back to Indonesia and uh, give them back to Lampung. Was it the significance of the ones from the village that was important or did you get them from all over the place? Oh, no, so I only collect cloths from Lampung, so the province of Lampung where we grew up. Okay. Um, or where, where Ros and I went in the 90s, mm. we only collect cloths from there. And then that Textiles in Indonesia are a big thing, so mm. um, so a lot of these wedding dresses made by the bride and and would take would take at least twelve months to make and very very intricate gold thread and and embroidery on them. Um, and so look, yeah, it's a it's a passion of mine. I, I, if there's anything, um, we've ex- had a couple of exhibitions at Goma and um, That's the National Gallery of Australia. Have um have a very large collection of, of these particular lampoon cloths, and I I have a, a bit to do with them, um because I've got some pretty unique pieces as well. But my I want my pieces to go back to Indonesia. Even the first one, you wouldn't keep the first one that started the whole thing as as a oh yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably keep the first, probably keep the first one. But this is maybe twenty years, thirty yeah, years. Yeah, he's just passed you, away. You're like, not yeah, quite. You're not, not quite there yet. No, it's not, I'm not quite there yet. I'm still behind them. So. <laughs> I'm not ready to give them away yet. Oh, no. that's beautiful. So now going back, you know, we are speaking because of Beef Australia and the event that is Beef 21 um, and you're a mentor for the Graham Acton Beef Connections Program. So who can, can you tell us who you're mentoring and what you're working on? Yeah, so I'm very lucky to uh, Julie McDonald actually asked 
whether I would have been interested and we're very close to the McDonald's and, and Julie's a great lady and she's yes. also a mentor, so the second time and she's done a podcast with you, I know, as well. Yes. And so, look, I was, I was lucky enough to be asked by Beef Australia um, and so I'm uh, mentoring, there's only two males in the group of 10. I'm mentoring uh, Hugh Quartz. He works for Auctions Plus, and we're working on a program which is looking at um, where cattle are purchased from, so whether it be sale yards, online or paddock, and the time it takes to get them to a feedlot, and the shrink during that process and the effect on performance whilst they're at the feedlot. So Hughes Hughes, uh, grew up in Burke and, and lives in Sydney now, uh, a great young fellow. I've spent, um, spent a little bit of time with him now, and we're, we're both very similar. We're both, uh, I hope Hugh doesn't mind me saying, but we're both messes, and <laughs> anyone that, you know, is really pretty pretty unorganised type people. So, well, You're doing a fairly intricate program there. That's a lot of data connection and detail, so yeah, this will know, be interesting, I think, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> Barb Bishop actually mentioned that this morning, that we were going to collect all this data that we're both messes, and she, she has... Uh, Maybe has a bit of concern whether we can get it across the line, but oh, no, he's a great guy, and uh, and Barb's great at just uh, directing you and guiding you. And there's a great group of uh, of mentors and and mentor partners. And so, look, I've, I really, I'm really enjoying it, and we'll get a lot out of it myself. Oh well, that's great, and it sounds like that's some really valuable information that you're collecting there too. That'll be really interesting to see how yeah. that pans so out. So it's it's not just about the project; it's it's about the you know, personal development of us both, I suppose, and the networking and uh, um, right across the board. So to get get you to to uh, to get out and 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 meet more people and and work out where he wants to go and what he wants to do, and and the project is is a bit of a tool, a bit of a vehicle. But at the end of the day, it's all about improving his networking, improving his social skills and and working out what he wants to do in the future. Well, it sounds like that he's got a, a pretty good match in you and, and who knows, he might start collecting Indonesian um, ceremonial. Yeah, just based now. on our uh, based in our discussions, I don't think he's going to go down that track. <laughs> Fair enough, not for everyone. Now, um, Greg, everyone on this podcast has asked the same question. Uh, when are you you are a bit of a cook, you've confessed to being a bit of a foodie. I don't want to know your show off, your show off piece. I want to know what you're eating, a favourite cut of beef for a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. Ah, uh, pretty pretty boring probably. So my, my favourite cut of beef is um, wagyu strip loin, oh. cut thick, medium rare with spurnay sauce and some good veggies. Wow, that didn't take you. You must cook that a little bit then, because that came yep. very quickly. Yep. So <laughs> there's uh, there's one of the big supermarket chains that you can uh, buy these strip loins at uh, very easily, and they come from a couple of really good suppliers. And I have ample amounts in the fridge aging, and they are spectacular. Well, there you go. Uh, that sounds delicious uh, on an average Tuesday at your house, Greg. Well, look, I think we're going to wrap it up there, but thank you so much for your time today and we'll see you at Beef 21. Cheers, Jane. Thank you very much. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council.
Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.